Just before our formal call to worship, um, some of you will remember, um, who if you were here last summer, that at the end of last summer we did an activity together to make a community quilt. And I'm really, really grateful to Elaine Downey and to John Rooney who have coordinated putting it together. Uh, and it's now finished. So I've had the privilege of seeing it already to make sure it's the right way up. So this is the amazing quilt that we made last summer. And we'll have to find somewhere suitable to display it, um, certainly immediately after the service so everybody can admire it, but also um, in the interim whilst we're still here. But what a wonderful thing to take with us on our adventure when we need to move out of these premises, God willing, uh, to redevelop them. Um, And I guess if you weren't here last summer, you can probably add your name on at some point. We'll find a, a suitable marker pen. This isn't going to work. I'm going to have to clip it on the middle. Find a suitable marker pen and then you can add your names on. But it's really beautiful and do come and look at it later. So thank you very much to everybody who contributed to that. So our opening words of scripture this morning come from Psalm 147. Praise the Lord. How good it is to sing praises to our God, for he is gracious and a song of praise is fitting. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Great is our God and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the downtrodden. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lyre. Praise the Lord. I'm not sure that we can run to a lyre, but we can certainly sing to God with thanksgiving. And our opening hymn of praise is number 66 in the Purple Hymn Book. Words will also appear on the screen behind me. And if you're able, you're invited to stand with me as we sing together. Jesus calls us here to meet him.
And so, having gathered and invited uh, each other to be in the presence of God, we come to pray together. I will lead us in prayer, and then we join in the Lord's Prayer. And I know I say this every week, but there are always visitors. Um, As is our custom, we will then say the Lord's Prayer together in whichever version is familiar and whichever is your own first language or preferred language to do that. And miraculously, we always get to the Amen at the same time. So let's pray together. Loving God, as we gather once again for worship, we remind ourselves of the wonder of who you are. We worship you as creator, who conceived the possibility of creation and who, as it unfolded before you, declared it to be very good, blessed it, and freed it to fulfill its own potential. We worship you as Redeemer, who, when that freedom was abused, and when finite and when finitude limited our own best efforts to make things right, you entered our experience and drew into your very self all that is evil and death-dealing, restoring hope and bringing new life. We worship you as sustainer, in whom all things hold together, and by whom, however indirectly, all our needs are supplied. God, creator, redeemer, and sustainer, we worship you. We approach you as our parent, like a father, like a mother combining in perfect balance our need of nurture and of discipline. Reaching out to us when we wander off in mistaken independence. Embracing us when we return shame-faced and in need. We approach you as a brother, the one who is at once just like us and nothing like us the one who shares our frailty and finitude, the one who shows us the better way, offering us life in all its fullness. We approach you as comforter, as one who we can neither control nor contain, yet whose touch restores our brokenness, revives us from tiredness, and inspires us for new adventures in faith and love. Holy God, whose being we can never fathom, and whose love we can never earn, humbly and hopefully we offer you our praise. And, assured of your love for us and for all creation, we join our voices with countless others through the centuries, as we pray together, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, 
that delivers from evil. Resign is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. got a little book here and it's a collection of true stories sent into the person who collected them by children mostly in North America but also well we'll do it correctly shall we in the United Kingdom uh, it's an American book so it does the classic elision of United Kingdom with one part thereof but we will forgive our North American friends for that and I wouldn't dare say which part it was But these are true stories sent in by children about things that were desperately embarrassing. Some of the names have been changed, and I don't know which they are, but names are allocated to each story. So this is the story that Phoebe sent in. I was at my grandmother's house. It was the day after Christmas, and I was trying to show my sister how I could slide up and down the hallway in my socks. 
and I was trying to make this move and to look really cool. And I was saying, look at me. I bet you can't do this. I started running and I fell down on my bottom. She was embarrassed. Or there is this one from Matthew in Great Britain, United Kingdom, whatever you want to call it. The most embarrassing moment of my life was when my gran came to my birthday party and she'd forgotten to put the denture cream on her false teeth. She put the music on and she started to dance. And as she was dancing, you've guessed it, her teeth flew out onto the floor. All of my friends laughed and my gran quickly put them up, picked them up and put them back in her mouth. How embarrassing was that? And this one is from a North American context and this is from Alicia. It was the day of the spelling bee at my school and I was in it. Some of the other people in it were DJ, Emily, Lila, Greg and a girl named Kevin. We did a few practice words and I had to spell milk. Well, that was easy. Then we went on to the real round. I had to spell purple. I spelled that right. I was so relieved. And then it was DJ's turn. And he had to spell voyage. He messed it up and he was out. And I did feel sorry for him. And then after a little bit, it was my turn again. And I had to spell viewpoint. V, E, oops. I knew how to spell it, but I'd got so nervous I'd forgotten the I. I felt my face turn bright red. I went and sat down. I couldn't believe that I'd forgotten the I. The spelling bee went on, and the girl named Kevin won. I guess we've all been really embarrassed sometimes, had those moments, well, I have anyway, when you just wish the floor would open up and swallow you, or you could just clap your hands and and vanish. And I was thinking about this this week and wondering, do you think there was ever a time when Jesus felt embarrassed? Well, might have been made to feel a bit embarrassed. I could think of one, but maybe you can think of others. When Jesus was about 12, his family went, as they did every year, for a trip to Jerusalem. And it was great because he got to meet with his friends and they would chat and laugh and play on the way down the road. And then they would go to the temple, which was just amazing. It was better than going to Edinburgh Castle and Buckingham Palace and everything else put together had they existed, which they didn't, but never mind. So he had this fantastic time and he just stayed on in the temple and he was talking to the the teachers and and asking them questions and answering questions and it was amazing. It was a fabulous time. Meanwhile, his mum and dad and everybody else was set off home, hadn't they? And after a while, Mary and Joseph were really worried. I thought Jesus was with you. No, 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 I thought he was with you. Is he with his, down with James or with with, um, Andrew or somebody? Nope, nope, where's Jesus? And they were really worried three whole days they were looking for him and they got back to the temple and in they go 
And Mary kind of marches up to Jesus and says, Jesus, what do you think you're doing? We've been so worried. We've been worried sick about you. Now, I think if I'd been Jesus, I'd have been a bit embarrassed. Perhaps he was, perhaps he wasn't. I like to think he was, because if he was fully human, then it would be pretty embarrassing if your mum walked in when you're having a great time and said, where the heck do you think you've been? What time is this? So I think Jesus knows what it feels like to be us. And in those moments when they happen, when you just think, oh, oh no, I just want to be invisible. Jesus gets that. And he understands. And he helps you somehow to get through it. This little book says, the best thing to do if you're embarrassed is laugh. Well, sometimes when I'm embarrassed, the last thing I want to do is laugh about it. I just want to cry. But we have got something better. We know that even in the most embarrassing times, even when we feel everyone's laughing at us, God still loves us. And Jesus is still our friend. Now, I couldn't find a song about being embarrassed. So I picked one that I I like singing. It's one of the daft ones. But it has an important message as it reminds us that when you're good and when you're bad and when you just wish the floor would swallow you because you're so embarrassed, God still loves you. Thanks, Paul.
Our first reading this morning is from the book of Leviticus, and then after that from the gospel as recorded by Luke. Let us listen for the word of God. When a woman has her monthly period, she remains unclean for seven days. Anyone who touches her is unclean until evening. Anything on which she sits or lies during her monthly period is unclean. Anyone who touches her or her bed or anything on which she has sat must wash their clothes and have a bath. And they remain unclean until evening. If a man has sexual intercourse with her during her period... He is contaminated by her impurity and remains unclean for seven days, and any bed on which he lies is unclean. If a woman has a flow of blood for several days outside her monthly period, or if her flow continues beyond her regular period, she remains unclean as long as the flow continues, just as she is during her monthly period. Among the crowd was a woman who had suffered from severe bleeding for 12 years. She had spent all she had on doctors, but no one had been able to cure her. She came up in the crowd behind Jesus and touched the edge of his cloak, and her bleeding stopped at once. Jesus asked, Who touched me? Everyone denied it and Peter said, Master, the people are all around you and crowding in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I knew it when the power went out of me. The woman saw that she'd been found out. She came trembling and threw herself at Jesus' feet. There, in front of everybody, she told him why she had touched him and how she had been healed at once. Jesus said to her, My daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. This week and the next couple of weeks are going to be a little bit experimental. Our sermons will take me and maybe all of us 
out of the comfort of what is familiar in terms of style and content and explore stories of three women who appear fleetingly within the Gospels. And each of the three stories is one that I cherish very deeply and each for very different reasons. And actually all three of them, if we can get past the dullness of over-familiarity, are remarkably shocking. There's an element of risk in this series of explorations. They could evoke thoughts of feelings that are uncomfortable. We could find our minds calling back memories we thought we'd buried. It's possible they will even touch a raw nerve in the present. But perhaps that is precisely why these stories and reflection upon them is really important. A few weeks ago, I was chatting to another woman minister about this series of sermons and saying I was going to preach on the story of the woman with an issue of blood. And she told me about a photograph that had been posted on social media and suggested I might consider whether that could be used as a sermon illustration. That conversation prompted me to recall other photographs that could serve a similar function. And so I tracked down these images online, and then I shared them with a very small group of trusted women minister friends, happened to be down south because there are more women ministers down there, and said, I want you to tell me honestly how you would feel if I used these pictures in worship. Would you be offended? And they said, no, we wouldn't be offended. But they were deeply uncomfortable with the idea, saying, well, no, that that brings back unpleasant memories from when I was at school. Well, no, that's embarrassing. Or that would upset the older ladies of the congregation, which was interesting because that was the oldest of the ministers that said that one, let alone be awful for the men. So what were these terrible photographs? Well... I'm not going to show them to you because I wouldn't want you to be offended or upset or whatever, but I'm going to tell you about them. And you can look for them online later if you're that way, or I can even email them to you because I have them on my computer at home. The first of them showed a back view of a young woman lying on her side, on her bed, wearing full-length pyjamas, the sort of knitted cotton ones. But these pyjamas and the bedsheet were stained by menstrual blood. The second photograph was a group of women celebrating having completed the London Marathon. Hands joined and raised big smiles. But again, the telltale sign of menstrual blood on the clothes of one of them. Attempts had been made to have the first photograph removed from Instagram where it was posted on the grounds of taste and decency. Though actually no codes had been contravened. There was no nakedness. There was nothing explicit about it. It's just a back view of a woman lying on a bed who happened to have some blood. And the woman who ran the marathon was heavily criticised in the media But I'm pleased to say that the women's health charity for whom she was raising money stood by her and actually shared her story. That these photographs have the power to shock, disturb, embarrass or distress us 
says an awful lot about society and actually about how little has really changed in the 2,000 years since a desperate, hemorrhaging woman approached Jesus. Whilst it's tricky to decide exactly what it is, there seems to be a taboo around body fluids and about health issues of a personal nature that could arise for women or for men that goes beyond simply questions of taste and decency. It seems this isn't just about privacy, which of course is right, but rather about embarrassment and possibly even about shame. I've always really valued the story of the woman with a hemorrhage, usually as an interlude within that of the healing of Jairus' daughter. But if I'm honest, it's only the last few years I've really come to understand and appreciate it in its own right. Here is a woman who had experienced bleeding for 12 long years and had tried every medical procedure known and available to attempt to rectify that. A long and undoubtedly arduous process with repeated disappointment and always hidden away never spoken of. She must have been very lonely and very isolated. I can't begin to imagine what it would be like to bleed for 12 years. But I do know what it's like to bleed for 12 months. I cannot imagine what first century examinations and treatments might have been like. But I do know what it's like to see 15 different gynaecologists at four different hospitals in three and a half years undergoing examinations that are undignified and, in that amazing medical euphemism, uncomfortable, for which read agonising, in an attempt to fix things. I've got no idea whether this woman chose to speak of her struggles to close friends or if she was totally alone. But I do know fine well that I was very selective with whom I shared my story. And I don't know what she did say to anybody she did share with, because nobody tells us. But I know fine well that despite the carefully wording of what was shared, news of my surgery in January led some to fear it was the return of my cancer. And we'd worked really hard on the words to try and not cause that confusion. And I know that trying to reassure some people that it wasn't, it was as it was absolutely correct, a side effect of treatment that had failed to respond to other, treat, other procedures, led to some assuming the lymphedema in my right arm could be surgically corrected. Alas not, that one's with me for life. In the end, some people worked it out, and others were told that this was gynaecological surgery. If you want the details, it was a total hysterectomy and bilateral salpingoepherectomy. There you go. But why was I, and why were we all so coy about it all? Why the need to hide away something that wasn't pleasant or desirable, but actually happens quite often? How and why have we slid into this confusion of private and personal, which is good and appropriate, or embarrassing and shameful, which isn't? 
Why do we persist in the taboos that result in people feeling the need to hide away or pretend everything's well when it isn't? This story is clearly important because each of the three synoptic gospels has a version of it. And usually it's Mark whose version we didn't hear, which is the longest and the most detailed. Of the three, he's the only one who records a thought in the woman's head. If I but touch his clothes, Jesus' clothes, I'll be made well. That is absolutely shocking. She was a Jewish woman. She knew fine well that anything and anyone she touched would become ritually unclean. Well, at least if anybody spotted that she'd touched them. The words we heard from Leviticus, she would have known since childhood. They would have been reinforced as she reached puberty and were now her lived experience day in, day out. And yet she pressed her way through the crowd and she must have at least brushed past other people on her way to Jesus. Her attention, it seems, was to touch Jesus and then slip away unnoticed. Nobody need know about her uncleanliness. Nobody need feel contaminated by her. They could just go on with their lives in blissful ignorance. And she could quietly reintegrate herself to her family. I guess that desire rings true for many of us. Certainly it resonates for me. If we can just quietly deal with this embarrassing thing, Whatever it is, and and if nobody else notices, well, that'll be lovely. Nobody needs to know. We can perhaps even pretend it wasn't happening. So she comes up to Jesus and she touches the fringe of his, his clothes. A touch so light and imperceptible that surely nobody could feel it. And her world is turned upside down. with her bleeding instantaneously stopped. I guess she felt, for a moment, absolutely wonderful. After all these years, her secret shame was over. The fatigue of anemia would be gone. The enforced isolation was ended, and a new future could now begin. But just as quickly, it all came crashing down again. Who touched me? asked Jesus. That's a stupid question, say his followers. Maybe dove, look around. But no, this touch for Jesus had felt different. Luke tells us that realising she could not remain hidden, that despite everything she had been found out, the woman came forward trembling and fell down before Jesus. Twelve long years of hiding away. Twelve years of excuses as to why she couldn't come to the party or the wedding or whatever it was. Twelve agonising years of expenditure, of hopes raised and disappointment repeated. And now, everyone would know. It's no wonder she was shaking. Disappointment, embarrassment, shame. Wouldn't we shake in that place? And then something utterly incredible happened. 
Luke tells us. She declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him. She broke the taboo. She spoke of the unspeakable. Quite possibly, in our language, she told her story. That took a lot of courage. And maybe some that were close to her looked and and then noticed there were bloodstains on her clothes. And maybe someone she had brushed against remembered and recoiled in horror because now they were unclean. And maybe there were women in that crowd who thought, me too. That's my story. And maybe there were men in the crowd who thought, well, that's kind of me too. Because some aspect of my body means I'm unclean, means I'm excluded. It was shocking. Maybe, maybe everyone was silent. And maybe there were mutterings and murmurings, the shuffling of feet and and some angry eyes maybe, or even some rather red, blushing faces. And Jesus turned to her and he said, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. He called her daughter. Sometimes when he spoke to his own mother, he would say, woman. And we sense that that was rather terse. But he says to this woman who has been bleeding for 12 years, who has broken the rules and has touched him, he says, daughter. You're a child of God. You're valued. You're accepted. You're clean. And he says to her, your faith has made you well. Oh dear. That's the tricky bit, isn't it? That's the bit where we kind of stop. That's the bit that could suggest that if only we'd prayed harder if only we'd believed better, that we too would have the miraculous healing. Or does it? What if faith is the dogged determination to keep on keeping on when everything seems impossible? What if faith means believing in God even when it seems that God is silent or God is absent? Because if it means those things, and I think it does, then we too do have faith enough to approach Jesus with our own hidden needs. If well means complete physical cure, then all too often we're going to be deeply disappointed. But if well is more about wellness, about wholeness, about a sense of worth and the strength to live life as fully as we can, and I think it's all of those, then surely that's possible for us too. 
And if our dogged determination and if our wellness are possible, then like the woman, we too can go in peace. Go on within the shalom of God to continue our daily lives. This is a really shocking story. A woman who has endured so much suffering finds herself exposed in the middle of a crowd telling everyone how it has been for her. Shocking. It's a really shocking story because Jesus, the rabbi, already on his way to the home of a nice, respectable synagogue leader, is made unclean by touching this, by being touched, sorry, by this unclean, bleeding woman. It's a shocking story because Jesus speaks peace to this woman and now already unclean himself carries on and goes to the home of Jairus where he will become doubly unclean by touching a dead body. And he doesn't seem to be disturbed or distressed by any of it. Above all, this is a shocking story not because it exposes the woman but because it exposes the shame, the stigma, the embarrassment and the secrecy that debilitates her every bit as much as the hidden condition. It doesn't suggest, and neither do I, that we should all start telling everybody about our intimate private health details, not that at all. But it does say something about Jesus that Jesus refuses to collude with this status quo that says it is shameful to be like this. I'd like to think that this story could say to the person who stays away from church because they have a hidden health condition, you're welcome, you're valued. Jesus welcomes you and accepts your touch. I'd like to think that it says to the person who feels isolated and embarrassed that it need not be just like this. Might there maybe just be somebody to whom you could reach out and share something of your story or your, your embarrassment or your concern? And you too might find acceptance and hope and encouragement. And at a purely practical level, I think it says something to the church, not just our church, but to the big church. But how do we make church a safer, more accessible place for those who need safe places to change nappies or sanitary protection? Those who need to manage stomas or catheters or whatever it might be. Who is it who stays away or nips off early or hides because without intending to, we exclude them? But above all, it says something about the challenge every single one of us faces in recognising our own potential for embarrassment, our own fear of exposure and rejection. I think it tells us that God knows and understands that. 
And that if we too dare to reach out to Jesus, we will find ourselves embraced as a daughter, as a son. We will be offered the wellness that is the freedom from shame, freedom from embarrassment, freedom from stigma. And we too will be blessed with the promise of God's indescribable peace. The peace that transcends all understanding. We cannot measure how you heal or answer every sufferer's prayer. Yet we believe your grace responds where faith and doubt unite to care. Thank you.
in our prayers for others today, you're invited to join in a response. So when I say the words, Lord, in your mercy, you're invited to respond, hear our prayer. So let us pray. Our Father God, we pray for all who today are seeking healing of body or mind and who don't know where to turn. We remember before you those who can't access the treatment they need because of lack of resources or the absence of someone to advocate on their behalf. And we remember too those who have reached the end of their treatment options and feel that there is nowhere left to go for healing. Lord, show us how to walk with those who are suffering. And when we can, to help their voices to be heard and their needs to be met. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. God, our Father, we pray for those who have been excluded from the life of the world because of chronic illness, especially those conditions that are still considered to be somehow shameful. We pray too for those who are excluded by the limitations placed on them by disability or old age. And we remember our own housebound folk, Gwyneth and Irene, who can no longer be physically present with us here. We give thanks for those of our congregation who visit them and so make your presence real to them. Give us all hearts that are open and hands that are ready to bring your healing touch to anyone who needs it. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. And we pray for those who have somehow come to believe that they are outside the bounds of your love and concern. For those whose guilt or shame about who they are or what they've done makes them fear that they are beyond your care. Heal them, we pray, of the memories that haunt them and give them the courage to reach out to you. May they discover that your healing can come through the touch of friends. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. And we pray for those who choose to opt out of life because of fears and imaginings about the future. Help them to see that if they dare to put their hand in yours, you will walk with them into that future, whatever it may hold. 
Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Lord, we give you thanks that you have placed us in churches, in communities, however imperfect, of healing and forgiveness, where each one of us is valued and affirmed as your precious child. And we hold fast to your promise that nothing in all creation can ever separate us from your love. Amen.
generous, healing, including God. Accept these, our gifts of money, just as you accept us, the givers, and continue to employ each in the telling of the good news in word and in deed. Amen. Our closing hymn is number one in the hymn book and appears on the screen. Christ's is the world in which we move. Christ's are the folk we're summoned to love. Christ is the voice which calls us to care. And Christ is the one who meets us here.
as we venture from here into a world in which taboos are very real, where fear or embarrassment, shame or disgust have the potential to make us retreat, we ask you that you bless us with the courage we need for the challenges we will face, for hope to inspire us and love to sustain us now and always. Thank you.